The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, as government heads into Spurs levels of empty cabinet, we're here to talk about signings instead of re-signings and lionesses instead of lion... Well, you get the picture. We review England-Austria as Euro 22 gets underway and say, never mind the ministerial mess, what about the ministering the match ball out at Old Trafford? We look ahead to Netherlands, Sweden and more, plus Kalina smiles, shock, and your favourite World Cup and more in this Toady Football Show in association with Paddy Power. All right, listener, at last, it's Thursday, the 7th of July, and I get to chat with Duncan Alexander, Matt Davis-Adams, and very shortly, traffic permitting, Julian Laurence. Hey, everybody. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Right. Matt, 7th of July, eh? Special mm. day? Surely is, yeah, yeah, uh, for all sorts of reasons, yeah. Um, the day after the Euros kicked off, maybe but, what you're talking about, but yeah, on mm. a personal note, Yes, it's my it's mine and my wife's ten year wedding anniversary today. An anniversary date we share with producer Charlie. Yeah, so lots of celebrations across the land. Uh, I'm sure it's good to know you share it with your wife. That's one of my mm. first checks. <laughs> my current wife, yes, yes. Possibly the most important matches we'll hear about today. <laughs> nice. Well, loads on the agenda today. Reference some of it in the intro there. Oh, but also we're joined now by Julian Laurence. Welcome, Jules. Hello, boys. Hello. Just to bring you up to speed, we've just been uh, congratulating Matt and producer Charlie on their uh, 10th wedding anniversary. It's not there, but you, I mean, their oh, respective. not together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. It nice. is nice, it's mine isn't it? Soon as well. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad you just joined us because uh, the next thing I wanted to ask was how did you get Pierluigi Colina to smile? <laughs> <laughs> We had a really good time, to be fair. It was an event uh, mm -hmm. for like a corporate company, uh, like, a, like, a, you know, like a speaking event. Uh, and it was really cool. It was, he's, he's, he's very referee-esque, but, but yeah, <laughs> I still managed to, you know, I said a few jokes and stuff What like were your that, jokes, Jules? So Come really on. Cool. Uh, no, I can't really reveal it in here. Maybe next time. Maybe next All time. Right. But it was it was really cool. He's such a lovely, lovely guy. I've, okay, that's that's what we all thought about Pierluigi Colina. He's such a lovely, lovely guy. <laughs> um, first of all, well, there's a. I have a lot of questions. One is, who was the corporate company, to bring your expression, who 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 thought we've got an event coming up? We'll get Julian Laurence and Pierluigi Colina. Like, what is the nexus on on your kind of Venn diagram of expertise? What was it it's, about? It's a Good question. So it's a company called Intertrust Group, big financial company, and they do a lot of things. And they had clients and guests, and they wanted a speaker. Mm -hmm. And I think they, they worked with Pierluigi before. Oh, yeah. And to be honest with you, our friend Gabriele Marcotti was the one who was supposed to do it, but he was still on holidays. So he said to Pierluigi, try Jules, and you, I think you'll get on well, and you can right. do a good job. So we did, and it was, it was really cool. It, there was good stuff. Like, for example, I had... I've forgotten that he was the referee of, I mean, the O2 World Cup final between Germany and Brazil, but the 99 mm. Champions League final, of course, he was the referee for the, uh, for the Manchester United comeback against Bayern. He was also the right. ref for Germany-England, the 5-1, uh, and obviously plenty more games, but yeah. I mean, he's no, a legend, really cool. isn't he? Possibly the most objectionable person I ever worked with in, <laughs> in, in my time doing <laughs> Italian football, actually, strangely. I mean, no yeah. offence to the man, no, but, but he guy. was... 
really. We, he was paid an, an, an enormous retainer to attend a Rome derby on behalf of Bravo, a, 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 a channel that subsequently went bankrupt and disappeared. But I mean, a, a kind of really large sum. And at the end of the broadcast, most of which he'd attempted to get out of, I said to him, thanks so much, Pierluigi. Could you just do a quick channel ident, you know, when you look down the camera and say, I'm Pierluigi Colina. Um, I'm Pierluigi Colina, you're watching Bravo. What what did you say? (laughs) Yeah, Troy McClure, isn't it? You might remember me from such games as the 1999 Champions League final. (laughs) And Pierluigi Colina said, no, that's not in my contract. In the end, I had to do it. Luckily, you know, I made a good stand in so. Yeah, there's rules. You have to follow rules, you know. That's why he said. Like, uh, he's got in your head, isn't he, Jules, already? Look, one one afternoon with Kalina and you're talking about respecting exactly. rules. I'm, 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 a, I'm, a, I'm a new man, clearly. Right. I mean, yeah. we arrived. It was on this yacht near the XL, uh, the, the, the event. Mm-hmm. And we arrived from his hotel that was just next to it. And the, photogra- the official photographer for the event said, oh, do you mind if we do a few photos of the two of you in front of the yacht? And he was like, Why? And the guy just went, well, because it's nice. And he said, yo, and Pierre Luigi was like, nah, nah, let, let's go inside now. It's time yeah, to, we said we were, we'd be at five o'clock inside. It's five o'clock now. We have to go inside. Right. Yeah, so. And that's the, that's the Pierre Luigi Colina exactly. I Exactly. You know, yeah. it's punctual. Yeah. No, it was, good. it was good. I mean, isn't there, to your point, James, isn't there, like, I've got a friend who's Italian and he says that everyone in Italy really doesn't like him. But in England, he was seen as this kind of god of justice that there was actually a campaign, wasn't there, for a while that English referees were so bad that they were going to get Kalina in just to sort of, you know, work in England and teach everyone how to referee. Right, so there is right. a bit of a disconnect, I think, between how Kalina's viewed. Uh, I mean, he was respected in, in, in Italy, but there there is a large, I mean, Juventini really hate him and and to be fair the match which lost them which he officiated the match which lost them the 2001 title uh the the uh, in in the rainstorm in perugia was was a uh, contained some i mean it was an interesting decision by Kalina to continue with that match but let's not get into all of that not when we got so much current football to talk about uh chris Slegg writing uh, is euro 2022 the first major tournament of the 21st century, when you can comfortably say the final two numbers, like Italia 90 or Euro 96. He's not wrong, is he, Chris Slegg? So yeah. Euro 22, whereas, as Chris says, saying Euro 00 or World Cup 02. Oh, I think World Cup 02 you might be able to say. Yeah. No, yeah. I don't think so. I agree with Chris. I think All right. it, this is the first one that feels natural. I'm Even not sure. And, World Cup 18, World Cup 14 doesn't feel right. Doesn't it? No. But we're in the two thousand. The you know the, the the twenty is the first part, isn't it? That you say so to say twenty two. Like I'm I'm still expecting to go on a little bit. I'm not sure it does quite no, roll I off think... the tongue. And we're still too close to. Oh, hang on. Wasn't this tournament supposed to be played last year? What is it actually called? Kind of Terry. I, well, think, I, think, expect... I think we're I think we're two years away from easily. Matt, being able what to say. do you expect? Euro 22 to go on to 2208 or something <laughs> no it's just that you say you, you it is 2022 right so you're saying it's 22 and I'm thinking yeah, yeah 22 what no it's, it's just not quite sitting right with me I'm afraid come, right. come back to me in 2024 and come I think... back to you in two centuries time and you'll yeah. be like yeah I'm all over. <laughs> much Excellent. more comfortable alright <laughs> well the Euros did get underway Wednesday night at Old Trafford let's start there You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Kirby to Ben Mee. Is this the moment? Off the line. 
England-Austria in front of a record-breaking crowd for a Euros game at Old Trafford, 68,000 plus. Uh, England beating Austria 1-0. The crowd, Matt, rewarded with the little car, bringing the match ball out, which I think everyone was delighted by. And also an England win. What else? What else did we get at Old Trafford? Um, well, I, th- I think it, the England win is, is the main thing, but the circumstances of it seem almost perfect to me because it, it was obviously an occasion which needed to be controlled emotionally for the players. You know, I've been covering women's football in England for over a decade and I've never seen anything close to that. You always get the feeling that you know there there is a difference uh, in the, the circumstances around a men's game and a women's game. And it's usually because they're played in front of, you know, a half full stadium at best. So that must have been kind of jarring for the players as well as they thought they'd prepared for it but I think actually the fact that they they won 1-0 is pretty much the perfect result because you know if they'd won 3 or 4-0 which they easily could have done with the chances that they they missed in the first half in particular uh, then the hype becomes almost unmanageable um, given that this is England but the fact that they won 1-0 you know still room for improvement in various areas but this could quite possibly be the toughest game of the group stage for them. So they've kind of managed expectations um, whilst getting the job done and and plenty to like at both ends of the pitch as well. You know, two big calls for Serena Wigman were, were Rachel Daly starting at, at left-back over Alex Greenwood and, and Frank Kirby, who, you know, it, it, you can't say enough positive things about in terms of the mentality for her to get back from a situation whereby it looked like she might not ever play football again a couple of months ago, you know, having to have an oxygen tent put in her house to try and get over this fatigue syndrome that nobody could quite put their finger on as to as to what it was. And, you know, that just, what, a year after a career was nearly ended by a heart problem, all the injury and illness issues that she's had um, so anyway, to give her a start, not something that anybody would have seen coming a couple of weeks ago, let alone a couple of months ago. There she was setting up the goal. Uh, the quality that, that England were able to bring off the bench as well in the second half just shows what a deep squad they've got. I mean, Lauren Hemp was excellent. The goal from Beth Mead was absolutely outstanding. So f- plenty of positives for Serena Wigman. But yeah, not one of those where, oh, great, they've won 4-0, so they're definitely going to steamroll everybody and win the Euros now. Mm. All right, Beth Mead with her 15th goal in the last 15 appearances. For England, Jules, you were also impressed with Kira Walsh. Massively, yeah, massively. I have to say, uh, I knew how good she was, and she's still young. She's only 24, but I thought that game was just a masterclass in midfield. The diagonals, especially, uh, she had nine nine successful long passes out of ten, which is way be- way above everybody else in the England team. For example, like you look at Millie Bright or or Williamson, they 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 were 40 or 50 percent successful long passes compared to to Walsh, who who just di- dictated the, the pace of the game so well and, and switched the ball really, really well. She's outstanding, all the recovery of the ball. She created two chances, interceptions. I agree with everything Matt said. I think the Norway game is bigger and, and tougher than the Austria game. Uh, and that's where I want to see an improvement from England because it was a good win, but they can play better than that. Let's be honest here. But for a first game with the pressure, with the environment, it's a really good start to a tournament where you don't consider goal. They had... There was two saves to be made at the end in the second half from, from the England goalkeeper. But apart from that, they controlled that game pretty well. But I think Norway and, and Ada Hegberg would be, would be maybe a tougher test. Mm, that's coming up on Monday. Uh, Norway, in the meantime, Thursday evening, will be taking on Northern Ireland. And Norway's side, of course, now with uh, Ada Hegberg back in their lineup will be probably a tougher test for England's defence. Yeah, and I think... Um... 
our supercomputer had England as favourites before the uh, before the tournament, and that's now crept up to twenty two point six percent. France are in second place, um, so yeah, it's looking it's looking very good. And you know, remember that Austria didn't even lose a game at, lo- at the last Euros; they went out on penalties. So, as Matt was saying, it's um, it's almost the perfect start, isn't it? A sort of really calm, measured win against a really good team. So yeah, all goes really well. Austria, the kind of obdurate team that England have struggled to break down in a bit. Norway, uh, you know, in recent times, Norway a bit more expansive than that. And, and having Hedeberg back is obviously massive, but there have been a few signs that they've sort of struggled to integrate her back into the team. So, yeah, I think, the, and, and you know, the fact that it's the first game, that always adds an extra bit of pressure, doesn't it? So I think that, you know, that... That was a pretty pretty good result. I quite like the presentation as well, I've got to say, on the BBC. I thought that was good. Um, props to, to Robin Cowan of this parish and um, Totally Football League show regular. It's a great, great commentary gig to get and she did a really good job on it. And I thought it was a nice touch to have Jonas Ederval actually because you know Emma Hayes has been such a big star of the kind of ITV broadcast of the last couple of years, hasn't she? And, and her and Ederval have got a real, I think, pretty genuine beef going. Um, so it was, it was quite a nice touch of the BBC to get yeah. the other side of that, and, and he was good as well. So yeah, Emma, more of that, please. Emma was really good on ESPN for that for that game as well. Uh, she's a different kind of pundit now when she's a pundit to to Jonas, who's he's a bit new, and you could tell on the BBC he was his answer was quite sure he could have easily at times said a bit more and stuff. But yeah, Emma Emma went the other side of the Atlantic. Mm. All right. Well, we'll have more on the Euros off-field and on a little bit later on as we look ahead to some of the key games coming up. And, of course, there's daily uh, chat about Euro 22, Matt, on the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. That's with you every day throughout the tournament. Next up, let's get some questions from you, listener. Oh, actually, let's get one from producer Charlie, first of all, who says, hey, Raheem Sterling confirmed by Chelsea. They've agreed terms with him. Still some details to be sorted out with Man City. When was the last time, though, asked producer Charlie, that Chelsea didn't drastically alter their forward line? And will Sterling's next move be to Spurs, seeing as he's making his way around the top four? I think he's being funny with that bit. But the first point is a valid one. Have Chelsea now got what they need with Sterling? Matt, you do a bit of Chelsea work. Mm, yeah, I'm really excited about this signing. It, it seems to have been quite divisive amongst uh, both pundits and Chelsea supporters. But I think that you know if you're putting Raheem Sterling in place of Timo Werner, and you think about the amount of chances that that Werner did get, the the kind of the thought process from a lot of people has been, well, who's going to create all these chances for Sterling to score in the way that he did for Manchester City? But I don't think chance creation was a massive problem for Chelsea last season. It was just putting them away, and yeah, Sterling much more efficient at that than than definitely Werner, and and you know much more mobile, obviously different position than than Lukaku, and I think I think it will work work really well for Chelsea. Potentially, I mean the, the the caveat for a lot of these kind of players is first half of the season should be good, but then you wonder what kind of shape they're going to be post World Cup. Um, but in terms of being able to to prize a player away from another big six club, that's obviously a rarity. Uh, his numbers are fantastic. He's won what four Premier League titles. He's he's gone as far as he can with Manchester City. I think it's a great bit of business. Hopefully, you know the first of first of a few more. But this is, out of all the players that Chelsea have been linked with, this is the, the transfer that makes the most sense. Raheem the Dream. <laughs> Trademarking that. Maybe. Yeah. Does Maybe. this shift the needle, Duncan and uh, Julien, in terms of their prospects, do you think, for, for next season, Chelsea? 
Slightly. Uh, as Matt was saying, I think he, he's a much better finisher than, than people think. He's one of those players that got tagged a few seasons ago after a few high-profile misses and then people never update their their thoughts after that happens. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be a strange season in the sense of, uh, and it's been discussed before on the pod, that we are now entering a, an era where big six teams are buying players off each other. And I think, you know, it's going to be interesting seeing how Gabriel Jesus does at Arsenal versus Sterling if he goes to Chelsea. But yeah, I think it's definitely an upgrade on, on Timo Werner. Um, obviously, Sterling can play kind of anywhere across the front three as well. So I think um, it doesn't mean that someone like Mason Mount is immediately shunted out of position when they sign him. So yeah, should be good. All right. Jules? I think it's a great signing. The boys are right. I think he can also be that player who can take on one-on-one against the opposition, which I think was lacking, certainly what Tuchel wanted. Hence the Dembele links, hence the Rafinha link. And even Sterling is a, is, a, is a bit different because, like Dan can say, he can play pretty much everywhere. He has this ability to just dribble past people and to beat people 1v1, which they didn't really have in their squad. So I think, again, he ticks a lot of the boxes. Uh, and it won't be a problem for him to adapt to anything that Tuchel will will throw at him or the way Chelsea will play. I still think that his his partnership with whoever plays up front, whether that's Havertz or someone else new coming, would be interesting. I think him and Havertz could work really well, but we'll have to see if, if Havertz is the number nine for Chelsea next season or if someone comes in to replace Lukaku or if the replacement of Lukaku is Sterling, which could also work. You play him as a force number nine or you play Havertz and, and Sterling and Mount just behind around Havertz, maybe Sterling a bit wider and Mount a bit more as a 10. But I think they're going to move to a back four. So then there will be, there will be a new system and then, and then a place to find for Ryan Sterling. Yeah, that's a really good point about dribbling um, from Jules because I think if you look at Sterling for England, he dribbles a lot. He dribbled the most at the Euros and Guardiola doesn't really like his forwards dribbling that much. So I think it's almost like a forgotten bit of Sterling's arsenal that um, that he could probably bring back to his game quite a lot at Chelsea. So, yeah. Mm. All right. Chelsea, meanwhile, missing out on one of their targets at the back to replace their departing defensive players as uh, Matej de Ligt has reportedly now done a deal, or you may have, with Bayern Munich for a move there. Mm. All right. Here's a question from Sam Pappas. How well or not do you think the promoted teams will do this season in the Premier League? Matt, Forrest have been busy, haven't they? Uh, yes, they have been been really busy, uh, and they needed to be too because they had these five loan players last season, who none of whom are, are going to stay. By the looks of it, I half wonder if they might go in for James Garner, kind of last minute. But but certainly, none of the rest of them are going to be sticking around. And they lost Bree Samba to uh, to Lons, who was obviously a massive part of, of Forest promotion. But I can say with some certainty that Dean Henderson feels like a big upgrade on on Bree Samba, and, and from from what I'm I'm looking at in terms of the the stats on the players that we've brought in, they all look significantly better than you know a lot of the players who played in their position for Forest last season. But I'm hoping that Jules is going to be able to tell me more because I mean they're 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 all French and or from the Bundesliga, <laughs> <laughs> so they're not players that I know an awful lot about to be honest. But um, certainly, I mean. I'm really pleased that Forrester are actually putting the money into it because there's kind of a balance, isn't there, between being Fulham and being Norwich and and you want to be somewhere in the middle of that in terms of your investment when you come up. And I think that Forrest look as though um, they've done that pretty well so far. I'm pleased that they didn't pay £15 million for Keenan Davis on the basis that he was quite good for us in the Championship last year and, and went for the upgrade instead by you know buying a proven goal scorer from the Bundesliga. It all seems very sensible and, and quite unsettling um, 
in that regard because it's not very forest. But yeah, hopefully Jules can can fill me in on a, on a couple of the names that I'm not too familiar with. Jules, go for it. Yeah, yeah, because I think they've given them a chance. I think this is this is the thing is that they might not stay up, but to stay up, I think you need to give it a good go, and that means investing money and and hopefully those players will will kind of pay you back. I think Awonyi is the one really who has such a great season with Union Berlin. He's so he's so good. There's still so much room for improvement. He knows English football, obviously, because he was at Liverpool with Steve Cooper, by the way, before. So they. They know each other well. He knows he knows the country and the culture. It should not be a problem to to adapt. For Bianconi and Yakate, it's a little bit different. More for for, for Bianconi, I think, because really good, solid player. There's no doubt. I think Monaco was a little bit maybe too high for him at the time. He was really young, but then did a really good job with Trois. He will give you a lot of solidity, and he's, he's got a really good left foot for crossing and everything. I expect him to. To go to go a step higher now, he has to afford if he wants to be a really good fullback in the Premier League. Nyakati, I've got no doubt, he's he's a great signing. Really is. He had a really good season with Mainz to start with. He's strong, he's tall, he's got leadership qualities, he's a very good guy. Everybody's gonna like him at the club, within the dressing room. He, his English is not great yet, but he's typically the kind of guy who will Im- emerge himself so well into the, the club, the culture, the dressing room the camaraderie and everything that I expect his English to pick up pretty quickly. It's not bad, but to, to, to be the leader that he can be because he's got those natural qualities, uh, he, will, he will add that to, to what he has already. For me, Nyakate is an outstanding signing for a club like Forest, I have to say. Brilliant. All right, Fulham, meanwhile, are not doing a Fulham so far, much to manager Marco Silva's reported frustration, although they have picked up this week uh, João Paulinha from Sporting Club de Portugal for £20 million. And also Andres Pereira is uh, coming in from Man United. Uh, he Well, he was an, on loan at Flamengo in Brazil last season and in Italy, the, the one before that. So one or two arrivals there. Fulham are like the Goldilocks team, aren't they? Because the last two times they've come up, once they bought too many new players, the once right. they didn't buy enough new players. So maybe mm. this time they're just going for the, the perfect amount. Perhaps so. Stephen Taylor... Want to know what kind of steaming bowl of porridge Newcastle have got in front of them on the table right now. After the takeover, says Stephen, many initially thought there would be a spending splurge. Do Botman, Target and Pope push them on in a meaningful way into a top half team? Hey, Jules, dinner, 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 Botman, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's not finished to start with mm. uh, their business. They have a deal in place for Hugo Kittike, the very, very talented young French forward at Reims. So that deal is in place. He just is taking his time to, to decide where he wants to go because he's got that many, that many clubs after him. Uh, but that would be almost 50 million euros. Plus, if you add Botman and you add Pope, and I, I think that they, they might be even not finished in midfield, for example, where they could easily add. I don't know how much the Joel Linton miracle and, and reburn, rebirth will last, but they might need, they might need another body there. But I like the way they do it. Why would you go and spend, you know, crazy amount trying to get maybe players who are big names, but the form hasn't been great lately or something like that? I don't know. I like the way they target their market and their, recruit and the, their recruitment. I think Botman is, again, is outstanding. Uh, not just, just with the ball, but, but also the physicality that he can bring, everything. I think he's an amazing signing for them. I don't know where that leaves Dan Byrne because you spend also... You know, it was not much, 15 million 
not that long ago on him and he, he did well for you in the second half of the season so you could play, play two left-footed left centre-backs but it's rare but you also sign targets so uh, there's, there's a time where where Eddie Howe will have to choose but Botman is great uh, I expect Bruno Guimaraes to be even better next season uh, which could potentially, potentially be his last season there because there will be a point where he's, he was going to be far too good for Newcastle anyway um, but yeah no I like I, I like it to be fair what kind of band of the of the of the Premier League do you see them aiming for or potentially finishing in? Oh, they will finish top eight. They should finish top, top eight. eight. I think, yeah, with the squads, I, I really expect them to add a couple more of really talented players there, uh, and I think they can they can finish top top ten for sure. Top eight is 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 a realistic ambition. I think they should have. Okay, Q has a question for Duncan. A penny for Duncan's thoughts as Vote Veghorst heads to Turkey after only six months of burning. I've got a question for Q. How have you seen Duncan's contract? <laughs> <laughs> but no, do do tell us, Duncan. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm very sad. Flags at half-mast. Um, I mean, he ended the season with an XG of 5.15, which was the same as Roberto Firmino, and more than everyone's hero these days, Joe Linton. Um, so... He's a wronged man. I think he'll very much do a St George. He'll go to Turkey, prosper and return to England, a hero. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I look forward to his return in the Brilliant. near future. All right. Aaron Hickey is returning. He's making the move for, from Bologna to Brentford after an outstanding season there. Plenty of goals scored as well. Mentioned Dilik going to Bayern. Pogba, his move back to Juventus has been confirmed. Barcelona, meanwhile say that Frank de Jong is staying at the camp and now and not going to Man United. Hmm. But better news for Man United with Christian Eriksen apparently verbally committing to actually making the move up to Old Trafford as opposed to remaining at Brentford. Can you understand that one, Jules? Yeah, I can from his point of view to play for Manchester United again... You, I don't think you can say even even as shambolic as they are now or as a rebuilding project as they are now it's still Manchester United and and he's still playing European football even if it's not the Champions League and he's potentially still playing with Cristiano Ronaldo and, and others so mm. you, you still see the appeal and also the big appeal is Eric Ten Hag of course they know each other so well uh, Ajax and Ten Hag were the first ones really when he's starting training again uh, to say, hey, why don't you come and train with us? And he spent he spent some weeks there, so that that makes sense. Where I may be a little bit worried, and I don't know if really worried is the right word, but there's clearly a big rebuilding job to do there. And Ten Hag seems to to only targeting. Okay, Malaysia is a bit different because it was a final, but Ten Hag and United as a whole. And when I mean as a whole, I include the the recruitment team and the sporting director and the technical mm. director. All of that seems to only be targeting players that played for Ajax and played for Ten Hag before, yeah. which I don't know how much it tells you about your recruitment um, philosophy or structure if you only go for the players that Ten Hag has worked with. So Anthony, De Jong, okay, Ericsson is slightly different, but those kind of guys, because what happens if Ten Hag is not there in six months, for example, or in a year, where you would have signed only the players that he worked with that fits what, you know, that he knows best. Mm. You can't tell me that a club like United don't have, doesn't have more, should have more targets outside of just the Ajax or the Ten Hag sort of little bubble in a way. Is it like when Graham Souness was at Benfica and he brought in Michael Thomas, Mark Pemridge, Dean Saunders, Steve Hartness and Gary Charles? It feels a bit like that. There you you go. Know, How did that like... work out, Duncan? Yeah, not that well. 
Not that wise. It's showing, yeah. uh, there's a contrast there, isn't there, with Newcastle and what we've been talking about. And, and Newcastle seemingly doing sensible transfers and probably no coincidence that they've got Dan Ashworth in kind of guiding that. And Manchester United, you know, with Darren Fletcher and some other people tossing some names out and Eric Ten Hag saying, well, how about these guys that I used to work with? And I don't know, if you don't have that, as Karl Anker has said for years and years, if you don't have that extra link in the chain of command, then, then this is what you end up with, isn't it? A, mm-hmm. a bunch of players that, that one coach wants and then a coach that nobody wants when he can't get them to play together. Wow. It's a bit bleak. It might work. It might, <laughs> we don't have to be too negative about it. It might work for them. It's just, this is not what big clubs do. At least Ronaldo's taken it well, though, so that's good. Right. Hey, well, that brings us on nicely, Duncan, to a question from Pat Kenny. While we wait to hear where Ronaldo's future lies. Ronaldo, who, of course, this week uh, didn't show up for training because of family reasons. Pat Kenny asks, which player do you think has regretted their transfer the most? Messi to Paris Saint-Germain or Ronaldo to United? Thoughts? I mean, Messi won a title, at least. I know it's easy, we could all have won it, but he did mm. win one. We've all got a league uh, and title in our trophy cabinet. We do, we do all have, especially you with all the, ta- the talent that yeah. you have. Um, real pace, mate, real pace. And there's one who wants to leave and one who doesn't want to leave. So if you want right. to leave after a season, it's surely because you regret going there I mean, if you want to stay. Mm. Ronaldo only needs to make two more Premier League appearances to equal Dean Holdsworth as a player with all the letters in Ronaldo and his name to have made the most Premier League Thanks, appearances. Thanks, Duncan. So, so um, <laughs> <laughs> in, other, in, other, in other Paris Saint-Germain news, they this week announced the exit of Maurizio Pochettino with uh, Christophe Gauthier arriving from Nice to take his place. Three-time Ligue 1 Manager of the Year, Gauthier. Mm. Paris Saint-Germain president Nasser Al-Khalafi says, we don't want flashy bling-bling anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to create a real team, find a real collective spirit. Aha. Uh-huh. What are your thoughts, Jules, on that? Yeah, I think that's what he said in 2019 yeah. and in 2016 as well. So I've heard it before. I'll, right. I'll, I'll, I'll play poker with Galtier. I'm happy to wait and see and, and wait for him to to have a bit of time to, to see what he can do with that dressing room. He, I thought his press conference on Tuesday was interesting in the sense that he used the words that I expected him to use, so discipline and demands and hard work and that kind of stuff because he knows that discipline was an issue under Pochettino, 100%. Hmm. And he's, he's a tough guy. He's got a very strong personality. You don't really mess with him. And he's already put together a list of rules for the preseason tour in Japan. And if you don't respect them... He also said something that was really funny, but I guess is a good insight of, of, of how he's starting his, his era. He said, oh, it was good today. All the players were on time. So on his first day, already he knows, let's highlight the fact that everybody was on time today. So mm. How much this, ketchup was consumed? Well, yeah, well, I think <laughs> maybe they hadn't had lunch together yet. Right. Uh, I'm not sure how much ketchup's on the menu in, in Paris, Duncan. What do you think? Uh, Christophe Gauthier's disciplinary record versus Neymar and company. Who who wins, Matt Duncan? Um, well, did did Mbappe have to sign off on that that list of rules? Was the Ooh. first thing that that came to my mind. That's that's the fly. He in didn't the ointment, buzz, isn't it? Yeah, he didn't buzz. <laughs> also, which players were back? Because obviously, players come back at different times mm. after. Was it just the kind of lo- lowly players? Like, yeah, we'll definitely be no, on time. No, because uh, the international players were supposed to be back. Oh well, I supposed to come back on Monday. Uh, but Messi, Neymar, Marquinhos 
came back on Tuesday, so a week before, six days before oh, the, wow. uh, the due date. Yeah, that's nice. And on time, clearly, especially Neymar. So okay, Jules, uh, Sasso Haino has a question for you. If you could only pick Paris-born and bred players, what would <laughs> your eleven be? Oh wow! Oh, that's. Do you want to come back to that one later on? Give you a bit of time to think. Yeah, yeah, I'll just write. It'd be easy. There's so struggling for numbers from. of. Can course. I pick myself in the team or as a, as a number ten? <laughs> all I right, can well, be captain what... or not captain. It doesn't matter. I'll I put myself in. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we're going to we're going to be moving back to Euro 2022 uh, very very shortly. But one last one, if I might throw this in: What the front door is happening at Bordeaux right now? Six-time champions of France possibly might get relegated to the fifth tier. Yeah, that's right. Uh, big financial issues uh, for the club. Who... But they got relegated from Ligue 1 in, in May. And how come now they're talking about the fifth tier? Because they don't have enough money in their account to stay in Ligue 2. That's the problem. The, uh, the French financial fair play, the DNCG, is quite tough. If you don't have enough money uh, within the club, then you can't, you can't stay in Ligue 2. You don't have the budget for it. So in that case, you'll go bankrupt and you'll have to start from the fifth division. Right. A bit like what Rangers did, basically. It's very mm. similar very similar cases in the sense that Gerard Lopez bought the club, uh, but there's two American funds who basically have the debts from Gerard Lopez buying the club, King Street and Fortress, who are tough. That's, but that's what they do. It's like Elliot. You know, that's what they do. You owe them money, but they're really tough with it. So the going down was... was Absolutely dreadful for that amount, for that, for that sense, financially. And then I think Gerard Lopez, uh, reputation, let's put it that way, and what happened at Lille didn't play in his favour. And also, you have to say, he made so many mistakes since he bought Bordeaux that this is, this is not surprising, really. As sad as it is, mm. it's not surprising to see them in that position. Oh, one of the biggest clubs in France. Uh, in a real mess. Just on on the subject of Elliot, by the way, who are similarly an investment fund who inherited a football club after the, the person they'd lent the money to essentially defaulted. To be fair to them, uh, the club didn't get relegated. They, they just won the title thanks to some pretty good management and uh, kind of interim management from, from Elliot, as it were. Certainly a part of that. All right, excellent. Next up, a bit on this day and back to the Euros. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one-legged bet builder lets you down. Which is excellent news for Everton fans when they make their Lampardian transition from serious to funny to serious once again. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Maximum free bet is £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. Online exclusives and T's and C's apply. July the 7th, everyone. On this day in 2012, Matt and Charlie got married. Also in <laughs> on July the 7th, 1982, Sir Bobby Robson was appointed England manager and with a symmetry that you might call pleasing or otherwise, on this day in 1990, eight years later, he had his last game in charge of England. Do you recall, Matt, Duncan, the third, fourth playoff with Italy? Featuring sure the worst, do. Yeah, worst offside decision of all time, the Nicola Berti goal non goal. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Then he wasn't offside. I can confirm, but I can also confirm that Peter Chilton managed to let in a header by being on his knees, um, and the header was from about 15 yards. So, I mean, Nicola Berti didn't even need to use his hands. Um, right. Peter Chilton, who shouldn't even have been playing that day. Mm. Dave Besant had been promised 
an appearance in that. But Shilton refused in a kind of Kepper-esque uh, manoeuvre to give up the gloves. Mm. Anyway, also on this day, 7th of July 2021, this. I'll tell you what, if this comes off, you can do what you want tonight. You've had a terrible 16 months. Kids, you can stay up. Don't dare go to bed. The rest of you call your boss. You ain't coming in in the morning. You deserve this. England deserves this. Feel it, ride it. All that outpouring of pent-up emotion, which is 50 seconds away. Just try and be safe and follow the rules. Otherwise, I'm going to be in one hell of a load of trouble. Yep, drink it in, you'll not hear it's like again. Although, actually, uh, some of the lines in there sounded pretty topical for uh, this 7th of July. The rest of you call your boss, you ain't coming in in the morning. Could <laughs> certainly apply that to one current story. But Sam Matavey's there uh, as England reached their first ever final, uh, Euros final, that is. And he reached a very, very special place of commentary. Matt, any thoughts on that as a commentator yourself? Um, football commentary is really hard. It is. Uh, it is what I would say. There's no producer Charlie cutting out bits that y- you might look back on and go, what? maybe I shouldn't have said that. Um, yeah, that 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 is mainly what I would what I would say to that. Listen, it was right. it was a it was a big occasion, wasn't it? You know, it it's, was. Um, it's a big gig. Um, yeah. In fairness, I really like the um, Shakespeare thing that Sam started off. Mm. The game with yeah, not everything's going to land, Jimbo. You know, we, yeah, we all no, know that's that. Fair. That's fair. When basically England are playing Denmark, and 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 Sam said, you know, could could reach a final. Is it to be or not to be? And Lee Dixon, I think it's fair to say, didn't pick it up and run with it. But I, I enjoyed it. Anyway, hey, should we get back to this year's Euros, Euro twenty two? Uh, some bad news for Spain and the tournament with uh, Alex Pateas suffering a uh, cruciate ligament injury in training with Spain on Tuesday. The current Ballon d'Or holder is out with us for the foreseeable future. A big blow for the Spanish, already without Jennifer Hermosa, ahead of their clash with Finland on Friday. Uh, big games coming up. Well, Northern Ireland, we mentioned, I think, earlier, taking on Norway at St Mary's down in Southampton Thursday evening. Saturday, though, is the game that many clever folk are tipping as the key encounter of this opening round because it's Sweden taking on the Netherlands. To fill us in on Sweden and their hopes and prospects for that game against the holders, we're joined now, I'm delighted to say, by Afton Bladets Frida Fagerlund. Hello, Frida. Hi, thanks for having me. Not at all. How are you? It's been like literally two, two years, three? It's, it's been a while, hasn't it? Uh, mm. Yeah, I'm very well. I'm currently in Chester, lovely Chester, I must say, uh, and preparing for Sweden's first game on Saturday. Yes, indeed. Well, Sweden, so often the bridesmaids, is that fair to say, Frida? And so often it's been the Netherlands, if you like, snatching the bouquet from their grass in the, uh, in the 2019 World Cup knocking Sweden out at the semi-final stage, uh, knocking you out in the quarters of the last Euros as well. Is there a big revenge feeling for Sweden about this game? Well, it's not a good record, but at the same time, when you ask the Swedish players about these games, they're, they're completely clueless about this. They can't remember a thing from, from these, these past games, other than, you know, especially the game in 2019 was very, very long. Sweden could have won it, so even if they 
they don't really think about these past losses. I believe that they obviously want to want to beat Netherlands once and for all. Mm, fair enough. Sweden, who ended the most recent uh, women's football tournament, the Olympics, in dramatic fashion, heartbreaking fashion, you might say, beaten by Canada on penalties in the final. Is it fair to say that while the Netherlands have had some disruptions since they won the title back in 2017, their manager leaving, etc., Sweden have actually got better? Is that fair? Yeah, they really have. I, I feel like they've the work they put in since 2017 has been tremendous. And Peter Jelsen, when he came in, he completely changed everything, like the style of play, a lot of new players coming on. And I feel like they have a great balance between young and the more experienced players, such as the captain, Caroline Sergo. And now is really the time to... To get that title, they've been waiting a very long time, Sweden, since 1984. Uh, always been the runner-up or, you know, third place and so on. So, yeah, uh, we definitely feel like we have a have a good chance this year of uh, finally sealing that title. Mm. What, what's the big question mark over the team in Sweden heading into this? Well, the worry right now is in regards to Stina Blackstenius, the uh, the Arsenal striker. Uh, she's been uh, having a niggle in her, her thigh. Uh, we're not really sure if she will start on Saturday. I, I don't think she will. I think that she won't risk, you know, getting even more more injured and maybe missing out on a whole tournament. So that's a slight worry. Uh, we have some great great backups such as Lina Hurtig, but she's a different type of player. Stina is is one of those players that are I mean I I think she's she's absolutely world class and I think I, I hope that she will show that this summer uh, and really take that next next step but yeah uh, at the moment that's that's the uh, the biggest worry okay goal scoring has been an issue for sweden netherlands meanwhile got pumped uh, by england pre-tournament they put five past them are you, are you going to be going along to bramall lane on saturday frida yes i will yeah it's going to be a very exciting exciting game and this is obviously like on paper this is the, the toughest game for for Sweden in the group stage so i guess it's vital to to get you know to get a good result there absolutely all right well we look forward to hearing your thoughts afterwards and and uh, have a have a great euro 22 in the meantime thank you very much Is Frida going to be going along to Bramall Lane or just Lane, given that, that the game on Wednesday was at Trafford, according to the billboard? Um, <laughs> interesting question, Matt. Do you have any other interesting points about Sweden against Netherlands? Um, well, it's a shame what, what Frida was saying about Stina Blackstenius being a, an injury doubt, because um, her at one end and Miedemar at the other, obviously formed mm. a, a really good partnership for Arsenal toward the end of last season, um, would have been a point of interest. Um, yeah, I think Sweden have got a really good team. Yeah, really good spine through it. Yeah, it depends how fit Blackstenius is, but uh, obviously slightly biased. But Magda Eriksson, one of the best defenders in the women's game. Um, they seem to have lots of quality throughout their team. So that should be a good one. But, you know, Netherlands have got like a Martins and, and people like that and Miedemar. So they've got plenty of goals in them too. So that, that should be a really, that might be one of the games of the group stage, actually. Other key games between now and Monday include Jules France as they take on Italy. 
Yeah, that's right. On Sunday, uh, big game again. Italy have really improved in the last two years. There's eight Juventus players in the squad, for example, who've who've also improved and, and done really well. Obviously, winning the league ahead of Roma It's going to be a really good game. And France still have those question mark over the atmosphere within the camp, the relationship between the manager Corinne Diak and the players. And we know how tough that has been. It looks better. They're happy for now, but mm. being a you know. Being so used to French camps, I know that it might not last long. So, huge game again. I know it's a cliche and Frida was saying about how important it is to win your first game. And we said about England, regardless of how you win it, you have to win it. But even more in this case, because I think if they don't win it, it could very, very quickly uh, make the whole thing derail. I see. Well, big game coming up against Italy, who are possible dark horses for this tournament. Uh, let's next up... Get on to our favourite World Cup. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. We've been reminiscing about some of our favourite World Cups from our childhoods and beyond. Here on the Totally Football Show, Duncan, of course, kicked things off, telling us all about the uh, his favourite, the dirty low-scoring affair that was Italia 90. Jules, as our guest today, why don't you tell us yours? Oh, it has to be France 98, of course, the first ever uh, World Cup won by France. I was 17 uh, that summer and it was just just incredible, the atmosphere within the country, what that team meant for the whole country, socially, especially, and the, the very famous slogan, the Black Blomberg slogan, which I think we all identified to in a way. We all felt like it, but being on the Champs-Élysées after the final win against Brazil was, mm. was something else. It really was. I've never seen the country like that. Uh, people said they've never seen since the end of the Second World War either. So it was, it was something very, very special to be part of. Do you think that lasted, that effect? Definitely not. <laughs> but in a way, it was predictable. It mm. was all this big dream that we had that basically this, this group of players that came from all different backgrounds, all different origins, all different cultural heritages, all of that, showing the rest of the country, a country that was, that was heavily divided not that long before when, when Jean-Marie Le Pen did so well in the, in the elections, show that you can all work together. This is possible. This is where we are. This is what we do. This is France as a country. This was such a, the, the perfect summary of what we were as a country. We all come from very different other countries and very different backgrounds and we can still all work together. But it didn't last because I don't think enough effort were put into bringing minorities at the forefront of everything that this country should have been doing. So we went back very quickly to what it was before, basically. And and I think we had to wait 20 years to have almost that discussion over again with another team that also won a World Cup that was also, also very eclectic. But I think there was a missed opportunity that after 98 not to have capitalised a bit more uh, on what that team meant. Mm-hmm. I hear you. Uh, the, the, the World Cup, though, Matt, how much did you enjoy it? How, what age were you in, in 98, actually? Mm, 15, 16. I think this oh, is right. my so, 
Good yeah, this is my favourite well. World Cup too. I think is it? You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Be, Italian ninety first, obviously. You know that that that's special for for that reason, but partly because England hadn't been at USA ninety four. That kind of whetted the appetite more for nineteen ninety eight. But there, there was just so much gold throughout it. Like, I really loved Davos Suka in the in the tournament. Um, I thought Nigeria in the group stage. They ended up getting pumped by Denmark in in the last sixteen. But I remember a brilliant three two win against Spain in the group stage. They got out their group, them and Paraguay, ahead of Spain uh, in the tournament. That that was magnificent. The quality of the goals, obviously the Bergkamp one against Argentina is the one that remembers. You know, we were talking about commentary earlier. The, the Barry Davis commentary on that mm. is absolutely magnificent. Uh, from adversity to triumph for the Dutch, they who were silent are now in song which is Good just a, yeah, an absolutely beautiful line from, from the best commentator ever. And you have to say that's magnificent. Yeah, quite, uh, yeah, yeah. Michael Owen, also against Argentina. Yeah, and again, Brian Moore, another of the best commentators that, that we've ever had in England with the call on that one. And, and what I loved about that was that somebody who, you know, at that stage of his career had seen pretty much everything in the game, just kind of losing his uh, SH1T, as, as people might say these days. Owen, and here's another Owen run. He's going to worry them again. It's a great run by Michael Owen, and he might finish it off. Oh, it's a wonderful goal! What an amazing and the camera cuts to the bench and there's like Paul Merson and Teddy Sheringham just in absolute disbelief at what this child has just done. Right. Brian Moore, of course, in the penalty shootout, a less successful moment with, with Kevin Keegan, which we detailed last week. A uh, massive honestly, regret of his as well, Brian really? Moore. Yeah, the, the yeah. biggest regret of his career, I think, that putting, putting Keegan on the spot like that with that question. But, it, you know, it did give us the, uh, the funny Keegan, no! Putting Batty on the spot surely was the biggest mistake. <laughs> well, he wasn't bothered, was he? That's the, the famous tale. Everybody heartbroken in the dressing room afterwards. And, and David Batty famously wasn't particularly interested in football. Couldn't have cared less. Duncan? No, it's all right. It was a bit macabre, the point I was going to make. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, oh, I thought, actually, I will make it. It's always quite poignant and sad, obviously, that Brian Moore died on the night that England beat Germany 5-1 uh, three years later, which was... You know, he uh, for, for me, he's my all-time favourite commentator. So, oh, right. um, yeah, that was obviously his last World Cup. Okay. Let's let's not forget uh, Martin O'Neill savagely destroying well, Robbie Williams in the BBC studio as well. Yeah, that's I do. I enjoyed. I, I, I thought that was I'm not a friendly happy. banter. Uh, no, when you watch it, the thing is, when you normally when you see it, it's from an end of year review and it's got a laugh track on it. There's an audience laughing along, which kind of it gives it a bantery feel. But mm. there's a real edge to O'Neill. In this, when you hear it without the audience laughing, and you've got a, a guy who, all right, he was a, very overconfident, he's, he's Robbie Williams, but he sat, he's essentially a guest in their world. He's come in, he's probably not feeling too comfortable in a football studio, and O'Neill just completely rips him apart. You've done really well because I thought you would struggle after take that. I, was, I really did think, I thought anybody who can't play, who can't, uh, who can't write, who can't play guitar, I thought really struggle. Gary Barlow. But if you if you were going to analyse take that at that time, you right. would say Gary Barlow, in fairness, probably held the group together. I think that that is a reasonable thing to say. And he flips it at the end by saying Angels, tremendous song. It wasn't the way I mean, that I, he... As, 
that's not what he did though. It, it wasn't a chance to uh, to analyze take that composition. It was it, it was Robbie yeah. Williams about to be thrown a, a kind of softball football question. Mike O'Neill just leaps in and says, "You've got no talent whatsoever. You owe your career." Yeah, but so, I would posit I'm, I probably listened to more Marcel O'Neill quotes in the 1990s than anyone else given he was manager of Wickham and that was essentially what he did all the time it was very kind of like dry sarcastic I think he he meant it nicely even if it didn't (laughs) come across that way all right I'd like to think Fabio Cannavaro and Patrick Vieira sort of you know had a message from Robbie Williams in 2014 just saying that don't worry we've all been there kind of thing (laughs) we've all been there indeed Piet and Janka do you remember his goal for Cameroon against Austria kind of Badjo-esque slalom through the Austrian rear guard. What else did the World Cup in 98 bring us? Duncan? The Blanco bounce, which he caught yeah. on big yeah. time. Yeah. I remember seeing someone try and attempt it with a watermelon in the Asda on uh, Stockport Road in Longside <laughs> in Manchester, and it didn't go well. Um, but yeah, that really was a, a craze for a few weeks. Right. That was against South Korea, of course. You mentioned England-Argentina, Matt. There was another uh, highly charged game uh, with USA taking on Iran. Uh, in Lyon. I almost got arrested ahead of that game, actually. Um, uh, Iran were training in Saint-Étienne, and, and we we went to a hillside above the, the, the stadium to get shots, like to get a nice... And uh, the, the, the gendarmerie, or possibly it was the, whatever, the more militarised version, um, saw some people assembling some kind of tripod with a pointy thing on it, pointing at the stadium, and came up and, 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 and basically, yeah. Well... There was the Al Qaeda plot against England in their first game as well, so there was that sort of was tension. Yeah, that one of Al Qaeda's original uh, plots was to um, target the England t- uh, team in their game against Tunisia in the the opening match um, and assassinate Alan Shearer. Obviously, fortunately, that that didn't occur, but um, it does. You know, it's one. It, it's one of those World Cups that I think had. Had everything, you know. It had, right. No World Cups had more goals uh, than it, and yeah, it was. Um, I think that's one of the things that's less remembered, but definitely added to the the atmosphere that you probably experienced it, um, before that. Game. It had everything. Uh, it even had Scotland, their last appearance in a World Cup. Uh, Croatia's first ever. You mentioned Davos Suga before. They finished third. Suga got the golden boot. By the way, there's an excellent new film out from the people who did Kaiser called Croatia Defining a Nation with interviews with pretty much all that team. It's on FIFA Plus. Little plug for that. It's Is it the World Cup with the best Nike advert? That's what producer Charlie reckons. Uh, Brazil at the airport. I love the 2006 one, I've got to say, with Rooney eating baked beans in the caravan and that. But a lot of people, a lot of love for the Mashkinada. Convince me to buy the uh, Brazil away shirt, which yeah. I'm sporting yeah. now yeah. from that. Yeah, he's so, wearing yeah. it. And Clearly. of course, the Ronaldo, you know, final yeah. incident. Yeah, also at the hands of Nike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Billich, Billich on, you know, Laurent Blanc, Billich, the red card in the semi-final. And then Franck Leboeuf, who, who was not supposed to play that final, then suddenly playing against a Ronaldo that clearly wasn't wasn't fully fit was not well it's crazy Arsenal mm. win the World Cup wasn't it in the uh, in the, the back yeah, page the of the mirror of the mirror yeah. Yeah, yeah the mirror yeah equaling West Ham obviously but um, <laughs> they don't go on about that don't worry about it um, the Ronaldo thing was like the in some ways the last pre-internet I know the internet did exist in 98 but you know only nerds had it but um, it was the the last kind of 
event of that type. Imagine that happening now on, on social media. It would be it would be a huge furore. But it was a very odd. I mean, Jules, is what is the has the truth ever been uncovered about that? It was an epilepsy uh, crisis that he had in the afternoon, and then they didn't want to show anything. They were not sure if he want he could play. He wanted to play. They said you can't play. Uh, so they changed the team sheet, they changed the lineup, and Mundo, all of that. And in the end, he appeared in the in the corridor. And the French said that they didn't even that they knew about something was happening, but they didn't care and they didn't lose their focus. Mm. But I think the Brazilians were pretty. For the ones who found Ronaldo in his room after the epilepsy crisis, I think that was pretty scary, to be honest. So, Jules, can you name France's starting eleven for that final? Ah, uh, yeah, I can try. Go so Barthez in goal, mm-hmm. Turam a right back, De Sailly, mm-hmm. Leboeuf, then mm-hmm. replacing Blanc, Lizarazu mm-hmm. a left back. Oui. Then you would have had uh, Deschamps and mm-hmm. Petit. Oui. And Carambeu, I guess, the third C'est one. Ça. Yeah, three more. And then Zidane. Oh, yeah. Uh, up front. So up front... Givar started or Dugarry started? Givar started, first? yeah, he did. Givar started because Dugarry yeah. wasn't fit. Dugarry came on later. And then Jorkev was the third one. Bingo. Voila. Very voilà. nice. You know, I had a ticket cause for the. Um, I was playing for the county at the time and we had a ticket for Serbia, Germany in Lens. Uh-huh. And, and there was a lot of German fans. And sadly, that night was where the, um, the German hooligans attacked the French cop, which was really sad. And to be fair, you could see how scary it was mm. uh, around the stadium. And there was a lot of German fans with our tickets. So we sold our tickets for a lot of francs at the time. My dad destroyed me when I got home. Like really, <laughs> really bad. Really, really bad. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. And also, if you follow me on social media, uh-huh. I actually lifted that World Cup not long ago on Friday. That World Cup? That World Cup, what? exactly. That World Were Cup. Were you in Quantum Lake? Just, just go and check. I'm surprised you, didn't, you don't check my Twitter and my Instagram, but yeah. And, the, and the, I even have the... The, uh, the the medal as well. Good Lord, George. I actually want to walk up. I don't want to say too much. I don't want to brag. You know, I'm not a bragger, but yeah. We oui. Okay. Uh, so what I'm hearing is last World Cup before the social media age, perhaps a slightly more innocent tinge to it as a result, but a good World Cup. One of the best by the sound of also it. Also the last World Cup yeah. to be won by the host country, which might not happen again in some respects because it keeps getting handed to... You, you don't know, see Qatar you. this... No, Not, I think semis at best, yeah, and then um, <laughs> Canada got work to do in the next one. But maybe yeah. Argentina in in twenty thirty. Interesting, mm. interesting, Jules. All right, very good. Well, lovely choice. Any other bits from ninety eight? Footix, remember the mascot? Footix, yes, Footix. Uh, no, you know? no chow. Yeah. Sorry, no chow. And now, no, but you, now we we have a name for what Footix are in France. Is those guys who support. Any team and every team, so they're capable of wearing the tracksuit bottom from Bayern Munich mm-hmm. and the Chelsea top, for example. We call right. them footics. So someone who like com- repeatedly wears different tops just for kind of. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I can't think of anyone like that. Nah, me neither. Okay. <laughs> anyway, all right. Uh, any other thoughts on '98? Well, just mentioning the French police. Obviously, yes. the day before the World Cup final. Um, the Tour de France started a little bit late and it was the Festina affair, so that it had been delayed. Mm. And there was a so that summer for me was a very 
you know, World Cup then flowed into one of the most kind of controversial but unmissable yeah, Tour de France's there ever yeah. was. So mm. it, it it was in some ways probably the 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 best summer of sport there's ever been. For the, for you, Duncan. For me personally, yeah. All right. Wasn't just the World Cup flowing into the Tour de France that year, of course. But hey, that's a subject for another day, a different podcast. Uh, brilliant. But for today, I think that brings us to the end of this Totally Football show, a listener. Although I know you're clamoring probably at the uh, whatever device you're listening on saying, well, what about Jules's all time Paris born and bred 11? Matt? Mm. Yeah, I'm yeah sure there you go. Matt was. So yeah. I haven't done all time, I've done yeah. current players. Oh. Because okay. um, I need a bit more time for all time. There's some difficult choice to make with the all time. Okay. Well, Parisian football history doesn't go back much, is that so? Exactly. <laughs> Areola in goal. I've got a back four of uh, Mukiele from, from Leipzig at right back. Konate from Liverpool at centre back alongside Kimpembe from PSG and uh, Rafael Guerrero left back. Then I've got very strong midfield. You have uh, Pogba and Conte and a guy called Lawrence in midfield somewhere. Uh, and then the front three, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I've got Nkunku uh, as my third midfielder. And okay. then the three up front are Moussa Diaby, Kingsley Coman, and of course, Kylian Mbappé. Yeah. It's a pretty good team. All right. Matt, would you, we, we should come up with a, are you from Nottingham? I am, yeah. I was just hoping that we were going to get a Wickham 11, but I feel like we might have to save that for a couple of weeks. For <laughs> well, players born in Wickham. Mm. Wickham 11. Yeah. Nottingham uh, 11. Heston uh, Blumenthal. Alexander up front. <laughs> very experimental. It is a very fecund locale, though, isn't it, Paris? And, uh, yeah, remarkable. But Rory Smith, our friend Rory Smith, um, yes. a few years ago on Twitter, kept coming up with, hey, why if we did a Buenos Aires uh, 11 or yep. a Rio, Sao Paulo, Milan, all of that. And we had quite a lot of fun with it. Well, you did. Manchester was pretty good from Rory Smith. Yeah. I think Manchester was pretty good. Yes. If I remember well uh, uh-huh. in England. South London is is, is possibly London kind of is, yeah. per square good, yeah. inch. The, the, you know, yeah, it's pretty good. One of the I'm looking at it now. I can see players emerging. Yeah, I'm sure. From cocoons. In the cages. Yeah. Blooming. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, uh, we've clearly reached the end of uh, today's show. Listener, many thanks for being with us. Duncan, Matt and Jules, thank you so much. And producer Charlie, too, is back briefly from his holds. We return on Monday. Do join us for that. And in the meantime, everybody have a great weekend. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on The Athletic app and discover bonus content by following The Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.